Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Welcome back to Private Parts Unknown, a podcast about love and sexuality around the world. I'm Courtney Kosak, and unfortunately, a couple weeks ago, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in a devastating rollback of rights. So, we are following up on last week's episode, which gave an overview of where things stand now, with an episode countering a common misconception. That people who are already moms don't get abortions or aren't pro-abortion, but that is simply not true. According to 2019 CDC statistics, 60% of people who get abortions are already mothers. And the belief that they don't is not only inaccurate, but it's also dangerous. Most late-term abortions are actually wanted pregnancies that, for whatever reason, wind up not being viable. And in these situations, which are technically miscarriages, Oftentimes, the same procedures are still necessary, and it's crucial that there's readily available abortion access for the health of the pregnant person to avoid sepsis and other medical issues. So today, I'm going to be speaking with Robin Marty and then later Christine Michelle Carter, both of whom are pro-abortion moms. And I just want to say up top that the topic of this episode is moms for abortion. So there is quite a bit of gendered language throughout, but it's important to note that of course, trans men and non-binary folks can also get pregnant and abortion in general is an issue that affects all genders. So we're going to kick things off with a conversation that I had with Robin Marty in 2019 when I first started my abortion reporting. Robin is the author of Handbook for a Post-Row America and the updated new Handbook for a Post-Row America in addition to several other books. And she's currently the Director of Operations for the West Alabama Women's Center. And I'm going to apologize right now. She's asleep. But of course, today is the first day back to school after winter break, which means that one of my kids got sick. Robin Marty is an abortion activist. And as I mentioned, she's a mother who was dealing with mom stuff when I interviewed her. So let's get into it. I don't know if you're comfortable talking about this, but you've never had an abortion, but you're such a staunch advocate. (laughs) Where did that come from? So that actually, ironically, came from having a miscarriage. I had had a child at 29, 30, something around there. And then I was uh, struggling to conceive again. We were trying to have a second child. And we got pregnant. And I was super, super excited and went in for a 12-week check because they always have you wait until the end of your first trimester to come in. And when I came in, they went to do a heartbeat check. And there was no heartbeat. 
And so I ended up having to go in for an ultrasound the next day. And we found out that actually I'd had a missed miscarriage, which means that I had miscarried. The baby had stopped developing, oh, three or four weeks earlier, but my body didn't recognize it and was still holding on to it as if it were a pregnancy. Because it had been so long, they suggested that I have a DNC in order to have the pregnancy ended immediately because there was such a risk of infection and sepsis. And obviously, my body was not in any way, shape, or form interested in trying to pass this pregnancy on its own. But that was when I found out that my doctor didn't know how to do one. So here I was finding out that this pregnancy that I wanted so very, very badly was no longer progressing and was just there. And yet I could not do anything to go forward, that I had a doctor who was never trained and that instead I had to go at one of the lowest moments of my life and call through all of these different doctors trying to find somebody who was able to do a DNC for me. And so I was sitting there realizing I was in search of a medical procedure that I needed in order to move on with my life. And I had this thing inside me, for lack of a better way of putting it, that I just could not remove on my own. And I couldn't find somebody who could help me. And that was like this, once I got through the DNC, it was this aha moment for me where I thought that I finally understood this is what people feel. And obviously, I can't have the feelings that somebody who has had an unplanned pregnancy and unwanted pregnancy and wanted an abortion. But that was probably as close as I was ever going to get because that was this moment where I realized this is still the same medical procedure. This is still the same action, this need to remove something and be able to move on with the rest of my life. And But I couldn't do it because here was a medical establishment that was stopping me. And that was just eye-opening for me. Yeah. I just read something. I can't remember if it was in the Washington Post or New York Times. I think in New York Times about it was a medical student who wanted to learn. Oh, the Arkansas provider? Yeah. Why yeah. are they not teaching this? I talked to a lot of abortion providers about this very thing because I have – there was one doctor that I spoke to in Arizona and she was flabbergasted because Arizona staunchly anti-abortion. And a lot of times we're seeing now that different medical schools won't train doctors. They won't mention that it's something that they could add into their training when they're going through OBG training. Or if you want to do abortion training, you have to leave the actual school and you have to go do it offsite at a clinic. Like all these roadblocks are up that makes it really hard for doctors to get trained in general. But she, this doctor was at a hospital dealing with a pending miscarriage for a woman that I think she told me was 17 weeks pregnant, um, was septic. There was no possibility that this child could be viable. And the OB that was brought in to deal with the miscarriage, because at this point the woman was hemorrhaging so fast, they had to keep giving her blood transfusions they were not able to do a D&E, which would have been the easiest, fastest way to be able to end the pregnancy. The doctor just was not trained in that. So instead, they had to induce her labor. It took hours. They went through, I think she said, four or five bags of blood. And the entire time, the pregnant woman was like, just please do not let me die on this table, all because a doctor was not trained on what should be a basic medical procedure. Yeah, it's so interesting when the moralistic... I don't know. When the pro-life people are like, we are putting people's lives in danger because yeah. babies. Yeah. This is exactly what we mean when we say abortion is healthcare. 
There are plenty of situations when it is literally a matter of life or death for the pregnant person. According to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, quote, pregnancy complications, including placental abruption, bleeding from placenta previa, preeclampsia or eclampsia, and cardiac or renal conditions may be so severe that abortion is the only measure to preserve a woman's health or save her life, unquote. And as I said before, this conversation took place in January 2019. So, of course, some of the legal details have changed surrounding abortion in America. And I'm going to try to flag them when they come up. But honestly, it's crazy how much worse things have gotten in just three and a half years. Robin's book, Handbook for a Post-Row America, was just coming out when we spoke. But it is even more relevant today. So here's the origin story for her book. And sadly, it sounds like a prophecy now. So the prologue is entitled, Why This Book? So why? Um, what happened with this book is that obviously for the last, oh geez, 10 years now, I've been tracking reproductive rights and especially restrictions that have been passed through different state legislatures in order to try and get a challenge to Roe v. Wade at the Supreme Court level. This book came about very, very quickly over the summer, right after Justice Anthony Kennedy announced that he was going to be retiring. And the last book that I wrote was about all of these different bills and how each one of them was meant to provoke a challenge to Roe v. Wade. And my co-author and I made this joke that it was actually called, this book is for Anthony Kennedy, because... Every single one of these bills was specifically made in a way to try and convince Anthony Kennedy to overturn Roe. And so they were all very subtle ways of doing this. But once we realized that Kennedy was leaving, now all of a sudden it's like, okay, that was the last quote unquote moderate on the Supreme Court. Now we have to deal with whomever Trump was going to put up. And we knew that his one litmus test was that it had to be somebody who would overturn Roe v. Wade. So all of a sudden we had reached this point of a complete emergency. We're still talking about if Roe gets overturned, and but in a lot of ways, we don't need Roe to be overturned in order for us to be at a crisis point when it comes to accessing abortion in the country. For a lot of states, we're already there, and for a lot of communities, especially communities of color and rural communities, we've already hit this point where abortion is almost entirely, if not entirely, inaccessible. But now it's been this eye-opening moment for the rest of the country who realizes that their right to an abortion is finally in danger as well. And so everybody's looking for what can I do right at this moment in order to try and protect it. So that's where this book came from was this idea of what are all these steps that we can be taking right at this moment? What are the groups that we could be joining? What are the volunteer organizations that we can go to? Where do we go if we need to find abortion funding or if we want to donate to an abortion fund? Where are the clinics? Because it's really hard once you get outside of your own state to figure out where exactly are all these clinics. And then what kind of protesting, what kind of political work, what can we be doing to try and mitigate as much damage as possible and hopefully reverse this trend? Yeah, a lot of the language that you use in the book is like when rather than if. So, yes. I mean, how real do you see that possibility? 
Um, I see things becoming very real within the next year because I don't think that we actually need states to make abortion illegal for abortion to become inaccessible. And what's going to happen in a lot of these states because of the Supreme Court is I can actually see the Supreme Court deciding not to act on particular bills and on particular restrictions, which will enable states to pass more things because they no longer have to worry about the constitutionality of it. The idea will just be that as long as abortion is quote unquote legal, then any bill can fly. And some ways that I see that this working is if you look down in Mississippi for the last, I think, eight years now, they've only had one abortion clinic there. And in 2012, they passed a bill at the state level that said that a clinic cannot operate unless you have a doctor who has admitting privileges to a local hospital. So Mississippi was where the Dobbs v. Jackson case originated that wound up overturning Roe v. Wade. And unfortunately, July 6th, that last abortion clinic in Mississippi had to shut down. The Pink House Fund tweeted, quote, Today is a hard day for all of us at the last abortion provider in Mississippi. It is our last day fighting against all the odds of being there when no other providers would or could. We are proud of the work we have done here. Thank you for all your support, unquote. So on that note, in Robin's book, she had some suggestions for how to move forward in states without abortion access and the risks associated. So in the book, you talk a little bit about self-managed abortion, which seems like in a lot of these super scary states, you know, one of the easiest ways to handle the situation. And it seems kind of out there, but I mean, women have been doing it since like Sacagawea or like before. Well, and if you look at self-managed abortion and self-managed abortion care, how it is right now, there's very little difference in general between what is being discussed in the book and the World Health Organization protocols and what is actually already happening in clinics when it comes to doing telemed abortion or even doing medication abortion at all. The only difference between a self-managed abortion and a medication abortion in a clinic is that in this case, a person would be getting their medication online instead of actually going into a clinic in order to get that medication. That obviously puts a barrier in place because how do you know that the medication that you're getting is the proper medication? But if we knew that it was coming from a source that we could trust, there's no real difference between doing it at home and doing it in a clinic. The biggest issue when it comes to risk of doing an abortion at home is the fact that because it is not legally sanctioned, if a person does have complications, that person will now be scared to go and report to a hospital or to go do any sort of follow-up because they don't want anybody to know that what they did was illegal and could get them into potential legal issues. The most dangerous thing about self-managed care is the fact that nobody can then do any sort of medical follow-up. That's what makes it dangerous. It's not the actual process of taking the pills at home. Can you explain Uh, viability standard versus fetal pain and why that's important to this whole situation? Before we get too deep into this topic, I just want to be clear that fetal pain is actually a misnomer. It is more of a reflex than the ability to feel and understand pain. The cerebral cortex doesn't develop until much later in the pregnancy. And anyway, I'll let Robin explain how these terms are being exploited by the right. 
a lot of what's going on is the idea of anti-abortion people who come in and kind of change the language of science. Viability in a medical definition means the point in which a fetus can survive on its own. It could have medical support, but it has to be able to survive on its own, no longer within the womb. And traditionally, when Roe was decided, that was in the third trimester. And obviously, we've had lots and lots of medical advances since then. That means that a fetus, once it's been delivered, can survive earlier and earlier in a gestational period. There is a point in which you just simply, with our medical technology, cannot go any earlier, and that's around 21, 22 weeks gestation. So what happens at that point, at around 22 weeks, is that the lungs get this secretion on it, not to be really gross, but basically the lungs start to work. Before that, when air is taken into fetal lungs, because they don't have this secretion in it, the lungs will tear. And that's why a child can't survive any earlier than that. No matter how much medical intervention we have done, there's nothing that we have come up with yet that can move that point back. And there's nothing that anybody sees in the near future that can do that. So if we were going by science, 22 weeks should be the absolute cutoff. There's just no way that you can survive any earlier than that. What's happened is that anti-abortion activists are trying to change what viability means. So in a lot of cases, they're writing papers, medical papers, that say that viability is the point in which, unless there is some intervention, a fetus would continue to survive. But they're not saying just survive outside the womb, they're saying inside the womb as well. So when you see Ohio heartbeat bands and Iowa heartbeat bands, what's going on is that they're trying to say that a heartbeat shows that a fetus is viable. And so because of that, if there is a heartbeat, that means that's a viable fetus. And then they can say, look, you can't have abortion after viability. So it's all these really weird, like tricky ways of trying to change what the language means in order to legally keep their new bills and their new restrictions working within the framework of Roe. What we're worried about is this idea that there is instead of using viability as a cutoff point, that the right is introducing the idea of fetal pain. And first of all, it needs to be understood that a fetus at this point, the College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, all of the major medical groups say there is no reason to believe that a fetus in utero can feel pain before the third trimester. There's absolutely nothing that supports it. But there's this fringe of medical groups that support eliminating abortion that says, Actually, we think that based on these studies, because we see adrenaline increase or because the fetus moves when you try to touch it with a needle or something like that, that that means that a fetus can feel pain. The idea is that they're trying to get the Supreme Court to bite on this idea that a fetal pain point should actually matter more and mean that that's when humanity begins than this idea of being able to survive outside of the womb. The problem with this is if they can get the Supreme Court to bite on it, they have all these other studies that say, oh, you know, it shows that at 13 weeks, it seems like these pain receptors might be in place based Mm -hmm. on this study. Well, it looks like at eight weeks, they might actually be in place here. 
Well, it turns out that it's one of the first, the nerve system is one of the first things that happens at six weeks of development. So what they can do is if they can get the courts to say, okay, we believe that fetal pain matters, then they can have all these states pass bills that say, we believe fetal pain actually begins at six weeks, at eight weeks, at 13 weeks. And so to protect the fetus at that point, that is when we're going to ban abortion. And if the courts have already said that fetal pain is the point that matters, then there's nothing really to stop it. And that's when, I mean, a lot of women at six or eight weeks don't even know that they're pregnant. Yeah, for sure. One of the things that's really complicated when you start talking about these bills also is that not everybody's using the same timelines and the same language, which is another reason why it's frustrating that not everybody keeps to the same medical jargon. So when we say a six-week abortion ban, we're not meaning six weeks after the point in which you get pregnant. We're actually talking about starting back from at the end of the last period. So the heartbeat or what they see as the fetal heart tones, you can actually see it's one of the second things basically that will show up on an ultrasound when a person gets pregnant. Because once the egg is fertilized and it makes its way down in through the fallopian tubes and embeds in the uterus, you get a gestational sac. First, you get a really thick lining. Then you get a gestational sac at like five weeks, which is a week after it's implanted. And then the next thing that happens is this little flicker of a heart. So we're talking about literally 18 days after the point of fertilization. So there's almost no point in there in which a person would be able to get an abortion before a heartbeat would show. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, privates. Boo, boo. Privates with penises. I'm talking to you. <laughs> Our sponsor, Fleshlight, can help you reach new heights with your self-pleasure. And that is because Fleshlight is the number one selling male sex toy in the world. And they don't just leave you hanging over there. At Fleshlight, you can explore sex toys with expert guides and advice, especially if you're a beginner or you're looking to level up. If you have been listening to the show for a while, you know how I feel about self-pleasure and it is very, very good. And I definitely endorse using sex toys. I have a lot of fun with sex toys myself. So with the Fleshlight Girls series, you can embrace your wildest porn star fantasies with a different porn actress every night. What? With the variety of models, sensations, and intensities, you can live out limitless fantasies. And you can automate your fantasies with a universal launch that fits most Fleshlight products. With its innovative touch control system, just set the controls, sit back, and enjoy. And you have pleasure right in your hands. Your pleasure is in your complete control. And as the ultimate male pleasure device on the market, it's as versatile as you are anatomical, stamina building, vibrating, or made for couples, you name it. You define your luxury moment. And I just want to say, if you have any shame around sex toys, please don't. It is so much better than being weird with girls because you feel kind of desperate or whatever. Fleshlight just allows you to chill out, wait for the right girl when she comes, and in the meantime, you know you are going to be getting yours and having a good time. So you don't even have to sweat it. 
And right now, Fleshlight is offering Private Parts Unknown listeners 10% off your order with our code PRIVATE10. So you just go to ppupod.com. That's the website, ppupod.com. You click Fleshlight and you use the promo code PRIVATE10 to get 10% off your delicious new device. Again, that is ppupod.com and enter code PRIVATE10 and it really helps support the show. It helps support yourself and your own sex drive. So go ahead and use the link in the episode description. We can all be horny together. We can keep this podcast going. So get yourself a flashlight and get yourself off. So the map of the U.S. that you have that shows access to abortion currently. Yeah, that's terrifying, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it is so terrifying. And then, yeah, when you look at it with the states that are likely to make abortion illegal, it's so, so scary. Yeah. And one of the things that I tell people is that, I mean, so many people are like, okay, abortion will be illegal in the state. Abortion will be legal in the state. But when we look at legal abortion states, I mean, even the legal abortion states, abortion doesn't exist in every city. Abortion exists in major metropolitan areas. And so you'll have all your clinics clustered in one place. And so what good is that when you're a person who lives in the state, but two hours away from your nearest urban zone. Yeah. I had a friend in Missouri recently and it was in Columbia, which is a huge college town. And still she had to go to Kansas city, which, I mean, if you lived in another part of that state, that would be an even bigger trek for you. That's crazy. Yeah. And the thing that's so frustrating about looking at a state like Missouri is the fact that Columbia had abortion services and the state actually passed a bill that made it impossible for the Columbia clinic to be able to keep their doctor there. So there should have been an abortion clinic there. They were doing medication abortion on and off for years. But because of this bill that says you have to have a doctor who has admitting privileges to a local hospital, and there was no hospital that was willing to give them, they had to stop offering abortions at that site. In the book, you go through state by state and list kind of what the scenario would be post row. What are the scariest states to be in right now? The scariest states to be in, frankly, is any place on the Gulf Coast, primarily because we're talking not just about abortion being made illegal in those states, but about abortion being made illegal every place around it. So if you get into a state like Mississippi or Alabama and even Texas, the eastern side of Texas, you're talking about literally... 10 to 12 hours worth of driving that you would have to do in order to get to a state that has accessible abortion after that. There's basically going to be a wall across the Gulf that is going to make it impossible for anybody to get out. I mean, you'd be looking at airline tickets. You'd be thinking, okay, maybe it's better to fly into Chicago where at least there's 10 clinics in one city and I can go in, stay one night, go to a clinic and fly back home. That might be the easiest way of doing things post-row. So many of these scary predictions have gotten even scarier than predicted. In Texas, there's currently an abortion ban from 1925 in effect, which bans all abortions after six weeks. And as far as Chicago goes, right now it is an oasis for Midwestern abortion seekers, but providers are worried that they will be unable to meet the demand. 
What's the forecast like for California? California is looking really good. California is one of the places where abortion rights are actually expanding. And now with Newsom, yes. that, yeah, he had promised that he was going to go ahead and sign the bill that um, Jerry Brown vetoed regarding making sure that um, medication abortion can happen in universities and colleges across the state too. So there's a lot of really proactive, good stuff that's happening in California. But again, California is another place where when you get into really rural areas, there's not a lot of available places to get an abortion. And one of the other things that is being worked on out there is making sure that abortion care can be expanded so that nurse practitioners can offer first trimester, even vacuum aspirations, things like that. So California has really been this great place to look at by the fact that they're making sure that all of their insurance covers abortion. Abortion is not going to be a cost burden, that you won't have to travel too far in order to try and get it. And honestly, California is probably going to end up being the place where a lot of people in the mountain region will have to go to in order to get care, especially when we see Utah and Arizona and every place else around their border kind of go down. As of this recording in 2022, abortion is restricted in Utah and Arizona as predicted. In Utah, a court temporarily blocked the state's abortion ban, which had gone into effect on June 24th. But a ban on abortions after 18 weeks of pregnancy is currently in effect. And in Arizona, the state has a law from before Roe that bans abortion with no exceptions for rape or incest and that criminalizes providers. That law was blocked by a court back in 1973 But these days, the Arizona Attorney General has said that he will ask the court to allow that law to go into effect. And a ban at 15 weeks of pregnancy will take place in September. So you point out in the book that the end of Roe doesn't mean the end of abortion. It just turns into a class issue and it means the end of safe abortion. Can you speak to that a little bit? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually use that. I'm not sure if I said that in the book, but if I did, oops, I wouldn't no, no, use no, that, that was my term paraphrase. anymore. Go, go, um, correct me. Okay. Because <laughs> it's not the end of safe abortion. What it is, is the end of, let's say, legally safe abortion, because that's what the problem is. One of the things that we really need to look at as activists as we go into this, this new post-Roe world or more obviously inaccessible abortion world is the fact that we are in so much better shape than we were before Roe happened, especially with having access to medication abortion. Our medical technology is way better in general. We just have a lot more options than we did back then. Like, I get extraordinarily frustrated by this idea of coat hanger abortion and, oh my gosh, if we have abortion outside of clinics, it's unsafe, women are going to die, all of these things because they're not, it's not the way it was in the 50s and 60s anymore. For every woman that we have in Tennessee who actually did try to induce her own abortion with a coat hanger, and that's that sticks in our head because it's such a rarity now. For the most part, what we're going to be seeing is people who buy pills online or who try to use too much parsley or all of these things. That's what illegal abortion is going to look like in a post-real world is going to be people not ending up in hospitals. It's going to be people ending up in jails. And it's going to be people who are ending up in jails because 
if there is a complication or just if they think there's a complication because there's not enough information out there for people to know exactly what a medication abortion looks like. When people panic, they're going to go to hospitals, and depending on which state they're in, what the color of their skin is, what their economic status is, background checks on them to see if they have any sort of pending warrants or anything like that. We're going to have doctors who are going to question because they want to make sure that it wasn't an abortion. We're going to have prosecutors who come in and decide that they want to prosecute to the fullest amount of the law because they want somebody to serve as an example to try and scare other people away from doing it. The most dangerous thing about illegal abortion when we're looking at a post-real world is what happens legally to the person who undergoes it. If we can find a way to get abortion out of clinics to get states to stop feeling like they have the legal right to question people who have bad pregnancy outcomes. If we can pass bills that say no pregnant person should ever be put in jail for the what happens in her pregnancy, if we can do all of that, we're actually in a good place because no person, legal or not, should have to travel three hours by car to a clinic, have an appointment, and then go away for 72 hours and then come back and give $500, $700 in order to have an abortion. With all of the technological advances that we have medically, that we have technically, this is not the way that abortion should still be going. Robin makes a good point, but I just want to point out that now that the post-Roe reality is here, the danger has increased. When people are more likely to avoid hospitals, when people are trying old wives' remedies to abort, and when there is less access for people who need abortion as genuine health care because of the legalities involved, abortion becomes more dangerous in these places and more people are going to get hurt. There have been movements like Shout Your Abortion and things like that, and I've felt it personally as you know, like I'm a writer who's very navel gazing and I've had a sex and dating podcast for two and a (laughs) half years and I'm just starting to talk about it, even though privately I have felt comfortable talking about it for a long time, because I think there still is this like huge amount of stigma and shame and there's just not a conversation around it. Yeah, I think one of the things that, I mean, there's two things that are going on there. One is the fact that, let's be frank, we're still, especially with this online, social, endless media, we're still at a place where any person who talks about anything is going to get targeted. And so, I mean, if you saw Amelia Bono had the video that went out just a couple of days ago that was like, a woman who has an abortion talks to kids about abortion. Like, I see so many people bring their young children to abortion clinics to protest. They have their child walking around with like giant placards with just a bloody fetal hand on it, things like that, or walking around with signs that say, mommy, don't abort me. And yet the utter outrage from the right over the idea that here was a woman telling teens, I think they were all at least adolescents, about what an abortion is and that she had an abortion and it was a thing that she did and she doesn't regret it. And they are just morally outraged and so much coverage, so much trolling, so much condemnation of her. That's what happens when people speak out and it's ridiculously magnified by our social media presence in general and how much we 
are able to use social media to pile on people. So that's already a problem on its own. The other side of this is also that when we talk about Shout Your Abortion or We Testify is the is the abortion storytellers program that comes through the National Network of Abortion Funds, we need to make sure that there's this enriched understanding of all of the different ways that people have abortions. Like there's shout your abortion, but there's also this idea of, you know, good people have abortion. There's the Athia Center, um, a reproductive justice organization down in Texas, put up billboards that said abortion is self-care because in the community that is self-care. You are taking care of yourself when you recognize that this is a pregnancy that you do not want and that you cannot handle at the moment. That is a good thing. It is a good thing to do to put yourself first. All of these ideas ideas need to come out and we need to make sure that it's understood that there's a lot of complex different ways to think about abortion and no story is more correct. No story is more right. There's no more value to the person who had to end a pregnancy that was wanted because there was a anomaly that makes it so that that baby would not have survived once it was born than to somebody who has had four abortions and just did not want to be a mother. We have a tendency as a society to pass judgment on people's stories instead of understanding that every story is valid. If you feel some regret about it, that's valid. If you feel like this was the best decision you ever made, that's valid. You can have all these different complex feelings because we are complex people. And so we just need to make sure that when it comes to breaking down stigma, we're breaking it down in a healthy way where we're telling all of these different stories and we're telling people, you know, it's okay if your story is not perfect, if your reason was not perfect, if you had a bit of regret or sadness, or if you were angry for a bit and then you came back from it, or if even you're still angry now, but you still know that it was the best choice. There's all these different complexities. And I just want to make sure that as we're breaking down stigma, we're making sure that all of these different complexities are heard. So you have some different ways in the book, but how would you recommend people help? Um, I have so many recommendations. One of the best things that a person can do right now, if they're trying to figure out how they want to get involved and how they want to help, there's a chapter in the book that's about figuring out what is the right kind of cause that you want to be involved in. So you can figure out, do you want to do something politically? Do you want to go sit at the courthouse and block the doors of legislators who are passing abortion bills? Things like that. So there's all these different ways that you can do things. The best thing that you can do is get involved locally as much as possible. It's not live yet. I expect it will be live next week. But one of the things that I will have on my website is a map of the US. And if you click on the map, you will be able to draw up your state and it will give you a list, first of all, of all of the abortion clinics in your state, but then also all of the reproductive justice groups, all of the abortion funds, all of the political groups, and all of the practical support groups, all these different groups that you can get involved with and with connections for how you can go ahead and join each one of them. Clinic escorts, all of these different things. So the best thing that a person can do, I mean, not to plug myself, read my book, because there's all of these different there's all these different blueprints of how to decide what should be the thing that you want to do and you want to focus on and then just go to the site and there's also the resource guide in the back of the book but the site will be more updated because books don't change <laughs> which is frustrating for for those of us who write online but books don't change once they're set they're set but All the new groups will be up there. There'll be volunteer opportunities. Getting involved locally is always going to be the way you make the most impact. Amazing. Thank you so much. The book's incredible. Such a great resource. I hope we don't need all those things, but 
I think we will. Um, <laughs> anything else that you want to say before we go? No, I think that's everything. The only thing I want to make sure that people know is that there are so many places that need so many volunteers and so much money. So give whatever you can give, be it hours, be it money, be it just a friendly, hey, you guys are doing great. Anything that will, will help keep the movement going. Robin's website, postrowhandbook.com, links to some great resources, and you can find a list of organizations near you who likely need your help. And she's also updated the book since we last spoke. So check out the new handbook for a post-row America, which came out last year in 2021, sadly just in time for this catastrophe. And thank you so much to Robin for all of your incredible work in this area. It is a lifeline for a lot of people. And now for a conversation with another pro-abortion mom that includes how to talk to your kids about abortion. Hi, my name is Christine Michelle Carter, and I'm a mom activist and the number one global voice for working moms. So I guess let's just start at the beginning, which I think is a really important statistic. And that's that, you know, 60% of women that receive abortions are already mothers and half of them already have two or more children. And I feel like there's a really common misconception that people that are already mothers and people who get abortions are not ever the same. Absolutely. There's this common misconception. And sometimes it can be from one political party versus another that uh, multicultural teenagers who live in urban areas are the ones who are getting abortions because they are stuck between a rock and a hard place or sexually liberal. And a lot of that is just based off of stereotypes. It's absolutely true what you said. The 2019 data from the CDC shows that 60 of mothers who have children have terminated pregnancies and the reasons are complex, be it from personal finances and not being able to afford to have another child to reluctance to adding a child to the family, to mental health issues, to not being able to physically carry the child to term. It is not a one size fits all answer to abortions. Yeah, totally. And actually, there's another study, the Turnaway study that I've been very fascinated by recently. And one of the findings that I thought was interesting is that if a woman is forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy, it doesn't just have a negative effect on her life, you know, or their life or that child's life, but the whole family and all the other kids. Absolutely. A child bearing in itself is 100% a national issue. I mean, even before this became an issue, we saw the importance of the household penalty and how much women do at home and at work and how much childcare is affected, as well as our economy when women aren't able to work and how hard it is right now to find childcare. And the ripple effect of that was that we have a generation now, Generation Z, that doesn't want to even have children and that will have dire consequences. So just as as our economy is impacted by women not having children, if they are forced to have children, there will be consequences for all of us as well. Mm -hmm. And you know, what's interesting is that I've seen a bunch of moms post on social media saying, 
actually becoming a mom or carrying a child to term made me so much more pro-choice than I was even before. I mean, I've done it twice now and the mental toll that it takes and the physical toll that it takes, it should absolutely be a, a decision of the mothers. And the fact that we have gone back to overturning Roe versus Wade and a woman can't have autonomy over her body and has to get consent for her husband. She doesn't have the right to conceive and not to conceive. The, she doesn't have the right to privacy anymore. I just, that's absolutely asinine to me as a mother. So have you always been pro-choice or was there any situation that made you realize the importance of this issue? Absolutely not. I have always been pro-choice, even prior to being, even to prior to getting my first period. I think that a woman's body is her right. She should have the decision as to how she carries it and how she uh, decides to get health care for it. All of that should be our decision. So no, it is, it is never come into question for me if I was pro-choice or not. You shared an interesting statistic with me as well, and that was from the 2020 to state of the motherhood survey. And if you could talk a little bit about those kind of racial findings and you know what impact if any they have. Yes, they do. They have a lot. So Motherly's 2022 state of motherhood survey showed that white moms are more likely to support reproductive rights, but black moms are most likely to discuss that um, as well as voting with their children more so than any other race. We don't have the liberty or the option or the freedom to sugarcoat things from our children. And rightfully so, honestly, because there's a saying that whatever happens to women happens 10 times worse to black women. And you look at the states where abortion has been banned without exception for the health of the mother or without exceptions for rape and without exceptions for incest. Those states like Louisiana and Mississippi are almost one third black. They have very large black populations. So we have to be having those conversations with our children. And I find it unfortunate when all parents don't have those kinds of conversations with their children, because this is a generation where I mean, uh, when it comes to Generation Alpha, my kids who are under 12 years old, one in five of them have already participated in a protest. They know what fake news is. They mm -hmm. are very aware because of the 2020 election of what it means to understand what the media is reporting and how to digest that information. They're so inquisitive and so curious. So just because your kids may not have that information and that may not be in your household doesn't mean their friends aren't telling them what's going on. So, okay, how do you, as a parent, have that conversation with your kids and you're talking 12 and younger, you know, some of these kids are not even understanding sex totally yet. So how do you have this kind of tough conversation, but important one? So it's not that the kids want to know about rape or uh, incest or any of the things that are affected by Roe versus Wade or that they even want to know about abortion, period. I mean, I had the pleasure of celebrating my daughter's 11th birthday with her yesterday and her two friends and the conversation came up, right? Oh. And it wasn't necessarily about them wanting to understand what abortion was. They were curious about what everybody was talking about and what the ruling meant and what everybody was so enraged about on TikTok. 
it was more so about the conversation of the reaction versus the details. Children just want to understand our emotions. So just having an honest conversation about it, and it's a great opportunity to teach what historically what Roe versus Wade meant and what the right to consent means for your child. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to get into, do you think men's bodies should be policed or the maternal mortality rate and universal health care and how <laughs> all of that is affected. It just means having an open and honest conversation with your child. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, did they understand these 11 year old girls? Like what was their level of understanding? So because these are preteens and kids these days grow up so quickly, they were aware of what this meant from a, a, a band kind of perception and what, and what the exceptions were. So they wanted to know what I thought about the states that didn't have exceptions for rape. And that came up. And I have to be honest with you, my daughter had no idea what rape was. So we had to have that conversation oh. and, and the conversation of consent and what it means that no means no. So I was grateful for the opportunity that her friend brought it up, quite honestly, again, being so pro-choice and being liberal, but that is where they stood. Now, that doesn't mean that my seven-year-old son, who was a part of the conversation too, he had no idea what abortion was. He had no idea of the Roe mm -hmm. v. Wade overturning. So we just had a conversation about why everybody was enraged and why we were having the conversation in general. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious for the girls, I mean, was there an understanding that like, oh, this is an issue that is going to affect me in the future? No, not yet. Also, because this is a generation that accepts identities and they're very into understanding their identity. So they're not thinking about what their identity means in, in pertaining to um, sexual activity. They're just trying to understand who they are right now. As we're in Pride Month, we're still in Pride Month, and right. my daughter's a proud member of the LGBTQIA plus community. She's trying to understand herself in the world. She's not really trying to understand herself in the world as it pertains to uh, sexual identity. Oh, in <laughs> interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So how can moms actively support reproductive rights in ways that really make an impact? Well, you know, this these past five years since Motherly has been doing their state of motherhood survey has been so interesting. There has been a number, an exponential growth in the percentage of mothers who are now really involved and passionate about causes. I happen to be an executive committee member of Mom Congress, and I highly, highly encourage women who can attend the Mom Congress event this September in D.C. to come out actively support reproductive rights. There will be training on how to speak on Capitol Hill and how to advocate for change, but it's where we get together to learn, to receive issue and advocacy training. We are um, talked to by influential leaders in government and on the federal side, and it's just a really great space to be in as far as an activist and feeling empowered. So I encourage all women to come out and get some training there. And when you post online and you're a leader, in the mom community, do you get any kind of pushback and how do you deal with that? Of course. I mean, I, everybody, just like we all have our right to choose, we have our right to literally choose the information that we receive. But I have the right to choose if I accept what you are throwing my way. Right. Um, once I share the information that I want to share, I always stay uh, rooted and grounded in fact. 
It's very clear and deliberate and purposeful when I share something because of it's the way I'm feeling emotionally. And I feel like I have the right to come at you if you come at me when I'm sharing an emotional post. If I'm sharing something that's truly rooted in data, you can't argue with data. But there will always be someone who has uh, something to say. And usually it's not based in fact. As long as you're basing uh, what you are sharing in fact, I find that you can just let those kinds of things roll off your back. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective. And is there anything else that you think is relevant for this conversation or you'd like to share? Absolutely. I just hope that folks know that if this was about babies, the men's bodies would be being policed. And if this was about babies, it would be universal health care and free education and free daycare and all of the things that were troubling mothers even prior to this Roe v. Wade overturning. Um, I hope that people know that if it was about mothers, it would be more concerned concern around the maternal mortality rate, especially for women of color, it wouldn't be so high. So again, it is truly about a woman's autonomy. And let's just keep focused on that fact versus the idea of it being about babies, because it's not. Mm -hmm. And where can people find you online? Sure. So people can find me at C. Michelle Carter on Twitter and Instagram and Christine Michelle Carter on LinkedIn and Facebook. Okay. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Courtney. I really appreciate it. Amen. Christine, as she said, this is not about babies or supporting life. This Roe v. Wade reversal is truly about bodily autonomy and the desire to control what people are doing with their bodies. I want to give a big thank you to both Christine and Robin for joining the conversation today. And I want to thank you, Privates, for tuning in and continuing these conversations in your own lives as well. If you haven't already listened, make sure to go back to last week's episode and get the current lay of the land as far as abortion access in America post-Row from an organization out there doing the work, the Center for Reproductive Rights. And in that episode, I also shared a little bit about my personal experience with abortion for anyone who might be feeling alone in their own experience. And next week, we'll be back with an episode on a totally different topic, but I do look forward to continuing this coverage on abortion on the podcast more over the coming months. And in the meantime, make sure you follow the show at Private Parts Unknown on Instagram and at Private Parts Un on Twitter. I am at Courtney Kosak, K-O-C-A-K on both Twitter and Instagram. And make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. It's just privatepartsunknown.substack.com. But there's a link in the episode description, which makes it super handy. Shout out to Amy Roche for the bomb-ass theme music. For more info about Amy and her music, check out amyrosch.com. That's Amy, R-A-A-S-C-H.com. This episode was mixed by Mike Castaneda of Plastic Audio. We love you, Mike. And after enjoying this content and hopefully learning a lot from it, could I ask you for a quick favor? If you could go to ratethispodcast.com slash private, and give us a five-star rating and review. It really helps other people find the show and it makes us feel really, really good. Again, that is ratethispodcast.com slash private. Or if you're listening on Spotify, it is super easy. You just go up to the right-hand corner of our page, you click the star button, and then you click all five stars. So thank you so much, privates. And until next time, I am wishing you lots of horniness and happiness. 
and of course, safe abortion access. Check you next time. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.